This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Boundaryless Conversation podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. In these conversations, we make sense of what's next. Join me, my co-hosts, and my guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world. Hello everyone, Simone here as always. Today I'm running this episode together with my co-host, Stina Hekila. In this episode, we talk to John Robb, the owner and principal analyst for the Monthly Global Guerrillas Report. It's a report that covers the intersection of war, politics and technology. Its goals is to provide people with the frameworks needed to make sense of our relentlessly chaotic world. John's previous experience ranges from flying special operations missions with SEAL Team 6 to being the lead technology analyst in a top technology research firm to start successful tech companies and pioneering online finance, social media and on-demand global manufacturing. In our conversation with John, we wanted to explore how the rapid power shifts we are witnessing towards open source, self-organizing networks are going to change the way we organize society and the economy. What patterns of organizing can we expect to work at scale? And how are these new patterns going to interplay with incumbent power structures, markets and institutions? The conversation generated many interesting insights and evoked some new questions. We touched upon the fact that the emergent future of organizing might not disrupt or obsolete the existing markets, but rather coexist. We also agreed with John that there is no way we can get away with ignoring the question concerning technology, as society literally becomes a technology artifact, as John said. Please enjoy this episode with John Robb, and don't forget that you can find links to all the materials mentioned and John Patton's page in the show notes. Here we go. John, thanks very much for for coming to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you, and especially for me that uh, you know I know your work since uh, at, uh, I think something like ten or twelve years, something like that. Because I believe the first uh, uh, the first interview that uh, I had the chance to to um, have with you was from two thousand eleven to text interview for our blog for my blog at the time, and it's a pleasure for me to have you back here in conversation. As you know, uh, the main objective of uh, the conversation that I would like to have with you today uh, is uh, to explore uh, your uh, understanding uh, in in terms of uh, how we can expect new uh, patterns of organizing to show up in the coming decades and uh, essentially, uh, especially patterns of organizing that can uh, be applied at scale all over the globe and how these new patterns of organizing uh, may interplay and interconnect with uh, all these incumbent uh, institutions and power structures uh, that we have uh, today, such as markets or traditional governments and, and something like that. Oh, sounds great. And thank you for having me on. So if you can outline uh, what is your impression in terms of how this new power of networks and and uh, uh, you know, in terms of how, what kind of patterns do you see emerging, uh, especially in terms of uh, uh, also new constituencies and new, uh, um, I would say, subjectivities that are emerging in the world of organizing beyond the traditional institutions and organizations? What would you what would you say? Okay. Um, I have some frameworks that are probably useful for this. Uh, one that I use is from uh, David Ronfeld. He wrote uh, Networks and Net Wars. Big thinker in the in the uh, military side in the U.S. in terms of how to use networks, 
he has a framework called, called Timmin, uh, T-I-M-N. And it describes uh, four different layers of decision-making. Um, you know, we as a society, each of our societies uh, uh, make decisions as groups uh, using these methods. One is tribes, T. Uh, that's in the past that used to be, you know, tribalism. Um, it used to be, you know, very crude forms of, of, of ways of organizing or you know, kind of relationships between people. Um, most recently in modern history, it's nationalism. Uh, it provides us cohesion. It, it lets you know uh, who is similar to you, who's working on your side or should be working on your side at least. So, you know, tribalism is, is an important kind of decision-making methodology. Uh, second is institutions. That's, that's basically uh, bureaucracies. Uh, like uh, Max Weber would say, you know, bureaucracy is the kind of the cockroach of organizations. It, it transformed us into the modern world. It, it made science possible, made corporations possible, made big government possible, allowed scalable infrastructures possible. Um, bureaucracies are, are great at uh, mobilizing resources, allocating uh, resources, making plans, uh, building things, uh, organizing vast numbers of people. So institutions are, you know, pretty much the bedrock of of the way we make decisions now. And then uh, the third one is uh, markets. M. So we had tribes, institutions, markets. Markets are great at allocating resources um, and finding which resources would yield the best return. Uh, or which uh, investments would re- yield the best return. And we use that also uh, to you know, modify uh, how we run bureaucracies. We use markets to decide uh, who would run the bureaucracy through, through elections. Elections is a market making or market decision-making system. So um, these three decision-making systems have pretty much been combined in ways that allowed us to get to where we are right now. And we're in the process of trying to add networks and networks is uh, until recently it was, you know, unknown how to actually use networks to make decisions um, or whether we even needed it. And um, what we're finding is that the world we live in because of globalization, connectivity, information flow uh, is exceedingly complex. Um, and it you know, moves very, very quickly and moves in ways that break down the old methods of decision-making tend to like this pandemic, for instance, it's, you know, the way it's swept across, it's, it's breaking markets right now. It's uh, making it impossible for bureaucracies to make decisions effectively. They're allocating resources in the wrong direction, doing the wrong things. Uh, it's breaking down kind of the nationalism that ties countries together. Uh, people are dissatisfied with the responses uh, in many cases. Um, what we need to have for a world that changes that quickly is 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 a network decision making system and i think what we're seeing globally is is some form of that developing um you know in the in the us uh when the federal decision making system broke down um and found itself unable to fully respond to the pandemic a network like open source network in this instance uh, actually ran the whole response that's going on in the united states so it enlisted the support of governors and uh, various institutions within the federal government. Uh, most of the responses that people are taking are at the individual level and voluntary. Uh, they're sharing information on how to do it most effectively. Um, and they've made a commitment 
come up with a consensus that they should work to try to eradicate uh, the disease. Um, and so they're pushing, you know, all these different organizations in, to react in, in a way that would further that goal. The downside with that network decision-making system um, is that it allows, you know, strong counter pressure. And so we have in the U.S. a lot of people still saying that they shouldn't believe that there is a pandemic. In some instances, that's good because it keeps the um, the consensus from becoming too strong. <laughs> um, if you have too much consensus on a given issue, there isn't any uh, anything any way to counter it. So it's it's good that we have that mechanism, but it also the downside is it slows the response. So are you following me on this so far, or, or does it make sense yeah, at all? Sh sh sure, sure. I was thinking I was thinking that. Uh... Uh, you know, uh, also following your work, uh, we can recognize these uh, um, uh, referencing to to this emergence of the emergence of networks as this new space of governance. And uh, I appreciate, uh, you know, for example, when we think about what's happening with the COVID, how these networks have a as as had very strongly, I would say, shaped the response that uh, a country like the US. Uh, as being able to to put together in, in response to the to the outbreak, um, but my 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 question is, uh, I see when I when I think about these frameworks, I can I can imagine I can see that all these steps somehow build on top of each other. No, so so somehow the institutional age has been building on top of the tribal age, and uh, the as you said as well, not these. Uh, Uh, market age has been building on top of this institutional age. Uh, so somehow these networks age are, are building on top of this market age. So, so for example, now we have this Twitter and Facebook that uh, provide this space for liquid uh, conversation and governance and, and open governance, uh, but uh, they're still based on uh, the... Uh, I would say these institutions that have been created through markets, such as social media platforms, for example. So, so I'm interested in understanding uh, what is your impression in terms of, uh, you know, what kind of changes and what kind of uh, different expectations uh, we as participants in these new uh, networks uh, are, su are supposed to um, uh, develop. So, Can we relate with uh, these emergent uh, uh, global and open and uh, uh, participatory networks at the in the same way uh, we have been uh, interacting and uh, uh, relating uh, with uh, markets and institutions? We will, but it will take time. Um, and, you know, this is, uh, you know, with social networking and the internet, it's very similar to the arrival of the printing press. Um, I mean, the printing press made possible you know, global markets, and it made possible um, large bureaucracies, um, and it made possible the kind of, you know, kind of media dominance that allows uh, nationalism to develop. So, you know, we have this technological change, and then um, we develop ways of using it to make decisions better as a group, and then we formalize the process. And in that process of formalization is going to take decades, um, you know, where we kind of curb the excesses of, of, of the decision-making process, uh, maximize the goodness of it to the extent possible, come up with some kind of a equitable way of, or some kind of a participatory way that uh, doesn't freeze out different populations, allows it to be effective for most people. Um, and then we integrate it with the existing decision-making systems that we're currently using. Um, I mean, there's things that the network does better than the others. Um, 
It's better at information discovery. Uh, all these different little edge voices that we have out there, uh, at least you know, we could see it with the pandemic. It was very early to pick up on these voices were very early to pick up on the, the severity of it inside China and then project out that it was going to be a problem. I mean, I wrote my January report entitled it uh, pandemic before they, well before they called it a pandemic. So this is back in January. And those voices help us discover information, discover solutions earlier than you would in a, in a, in a standard bureaucratic setting, uh, in a kind of a, in a, in a market setting. It also allows us, networks allow us to mobilize and uh, we we haven't really fully used that yet, but we can see this in in, in the big protests that have been started on, on on networks. I mean, we had one in Puerto Rico just recently where the governor overstepped and there was a massive protest and the governor stepped down. So it was like it can mobilize a you know huge protest and, and large group action. Um, networks are also good at you know information sharing, so good ideas travel very quickly, far quicker than it would be. Um, traveling using mass media or traditional methods in a, at a much more granular detail than you would get uh, in the watered down messages, messages you get at the mass media level. So you'd, at the mass media level, you would say, have people say, wash your hands with soap and water. And then in the uh, network world, it's not only that, but you know what kind of uh, other things you can take in terms of hygiene <laughs> that, that uh, allow you to you know, survive in this environment. Um, mm -hmm. I think the, uh, the big, the big thing is, you know, dealing with a complex world, you know, the difference between like, you know, simplistic, complicated, complex, chaotic, that kind of, uh, quadrant thing. Yeah. So, you know, moving from complicated, which is where markets and bureaucracies and, and tribalism seem to be best suited, you move to complex, you have to have this extra discovery mechanism for finding the ideas that best suit this complex, uh, challenge. Uh, or the complex challenges that you face in this environment, um, and it's got to you know it provides you also the speed at which you, the speed at which you need in order to respond to the the challenges you face. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I and, mean uh, networks are great. I mean in that regard, it's just uh, okay. Go ahead. No, the quick question that I, you, you you let me you you brought some thinking to with with this reflection and and uh, so so when you think about for example new solutions these new these networks are able to to provide uh, perspectives new perspectives new solutions that normally traditional institutions or markets um, cannot bring. Uh, my, my question is, uh, do you see this transition? Let's say in terms of. Uh, um, in terms of importance, you know, the transition between uh, uh, markets and networks um, as uh, going through a breakdown of some kind or, 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 or it's, a, it's a smooth transition. So, so my question is, uh, uh, for example, uh, when, when we transition towards a complex, uh, complex environments and uh, we agree that, uh, you know, the traditional industrial institutions cannot cope with that and we need to organize in networks, uh, do we also need to be, as individuals and communities, do we need to be open to, to what? To break down, to, to leave something... Uh, you know, leave something uh, on the table. I mean, you know, uh, I have some renounce uh, to, to renounce to something that uh, we may be used to in the world of institutions. Uh, so how is, is this transition going to happen? Is it going to be a bumpy transition or is it going to be a smooth one? Well, um, it'd probably be bumpy. I mean, there's, there's a, 
things we'll see and we see right now, I mean, we see it right now in the response to the pandemic is that uh, that we have to get used to having uh, vocal opposition to what the consensus is, you know, appear on on the networks. I mean, and that it that there's always going to be clusters of people that disagree. And it's better to let them do that, even though you get a suboptimal response, because having those edge voices in, in place allow us to uh, break out of a consensus if, if, if it, the consensus actually ends up being wrong. Um, it's early to identify that, right? And uh, it's also where the new ideas come from, the, the new, new discoveries come from. And it's really hard for people to get their heads around the fact that that the, there are these, especially even in times of crisis, is that there are these edge voices are actually valuable. I mean, it's, the normal reaction is to get mad at them. And then there's a, a interesting thing is that big technological changes like this are and moving on to social networking. It's, it's you know, I, I like the McCl- Marshall McLuhan uh, view of this is that it's not just changing, you know, how we are communicating and how we are organizing. It's it's rewiring us. It's re- rewiring our brains um, at a at a very deep level. Um, it's changing the way we think. You know, when we went through the the printing press revolution, we started to think more as individuals, and you learned by reading um, through self reflection, um, and you stood as an individual with your your opinions and your your knowledge and your uh, and your individual voice um, this is different going to social networking we become more tribal and we think as groups more um, and we think in patterns we do a lot more pattern matching it's a it's a deep rewiring that's going to have an effect in terms of how we that's you know driving this kind of reorganization of society that we're seeing and um, that can potentially be uh, you know, it might provoke war. I mean, it didn't, it didn't, you know, after the printing press, it, you know, with the, what it did with the reformation in terms of how it reorganized society in Europe. Um, so that rewiring is really cool. If you, you got to really think in terms of how it's actually changing the way you, 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 you process information and how we process information. I, like for instance, when I see something, uh, that I'm not sure about online, um, I don't have to determine whether or not that is true just by myself. You know, it used to be that you'd have to, as an individual, determine whether something is true or not, and that you'd have to have institutions protect you to make sure that you only had this true information. But in a network world, I, I throw it out to my network, and we think as a group, and there's always somebody in, that, in my network that, that will say, hey, that's wrong, that picture is false, uh, that's misinformation, or... Uh, that doesn't tell the whole story. Here's the here's the, the rest of the story. Uh, so, in a large sense, that or to a large degree, you're you're thinking as a network, and you're only as smart as your network. Mm-hmm. And is is this network uh, space uh, the space where the new entrepreneurship is going to emerge? So, so to say that uh, we are pretty used, you know, you, you are refer- referencing to this, uh, essentially to this evolution from the individual, the age of the individual into the age of these networks and communities. Uh, so, so, so my, my, my question is, uh, how is entrepreneurship going to change in this process? Uh, what, what, may, what becomes a worth uh, an enterprise? Uh, what, what are we going to organize? What kind of needs and what kind of uh, desires are these communities going to organize around? And in this process, 
what is the role of scale? How do we interconnect at scale? What entrepreneurial project can be replicated and how? Uh, are we going through these uh, the, the, the patterns of open source? Uh, what is the role of blockchain, for example, in these distributed organizations? How do you see that playing out? Okay, that's a lot of questions. <laughs> um, yes. You know, I haven't really seen as much as I'd like it in terms of blockchain zooming, but, you know, network thinking is, it's already permeated the workplace in terms of how people interact with each other, how people share information, how people vet information and how they make decisions. Uh, you know, all of the younger workers already, you know, coming in um, into the workforce are, are network natives in that respect. I mean, they, they live on their phones and they live uh, in this kind of socially networked world. Um, and they think that way naturally. So uh, it, it, it's permeating the workforce in that regard. In terms of big changes, I'm seeing it mostly at the, at the, the super macro scale. Um, you know, these big, you know, the open source decision-making that's running the U.S. response to the pandemic is a, is a great example. And I see it also in the way uh, in which, uh, you know, disruptive ideas emerge. And so, you know, companies, for instance, will have to become uh, more tolerant of, of opposition or oppositional ideas. Uh, you know, there's a difference between those or, you know, those ideas that are just, you know, intent to do damage or harm or, or malicious and those ideas that are, are potentially good and potentially needed in order to, you know, stay a relevant or in the marketplace. And the way I guess you differentiate those is, of course, if you find somebody has a good idea, if they gains purchase within the company, that's the kind of idea that you want to focus in on. I mean, the one that actually gets a following behind it, that other people see that pattern, other people see that potential. And that may be the idea that actually allows your company to succeed where others haven't. In terms of entrepreneurship, I mean, mostly on the tech side, you know, most of this is most of the really uh, fast moving ventures have all been in terms of just slicing up the social networking space smaller and smaller. I mean, I was in social networking back way back, back in 2001, when we were doing the initial blogging in RSS um, and building the initial social networks. Uh, so I kind of got the, a sense of how that kind of marketplace took off. And it was slow because it took till 2004 before Facebook and beyond that for, for Twitter. But using the same mechanisms that were kind of put in place back then, um, the big, I think the next big tech entrepreneurship boom is going to be end up being in the in the uh, augmented reality space in terms of and and the only reason i see that say that because that's always been a you know technology on the come and it's always you know on the way towards us is that um i'm getting a real sense of what that would look like and how that would add value through uh, playing some you know evergreen games uh, that allow you to heavily mod them so i mean i don't know if you guys ever play uh, you know, say fallout or skyrim I mean, they're open world games and they allow mods to, you know, modifications to be developed in the kind of open source community. And even though those games are old, been out for years, there's dozens of new mods out every day. And what they allow you to do is they allow you to change everything, you know, from the you know, character's appearance to the, to the environment, to the, to the voices, to the, uh, even the kind of the feel of the environment around you, the, the music, the background, um, everything is changeable. The, the, it, everything is modifiable. And 
it, if you project that out into the kind of AR world that we're right on the edge of, of, of hitting, is that allowing you to modify everything about your world, add objects that add decor, uh, add sunlight and on a cloudy day, uh, add environmental details and add, add information to everything is a, is a, like an amazing transformation that's going to, you know, make this whole thing explode. So, um, you know, all of the dislocation that we're going through now with, with, with just social networking is going to be, you know, cubed when we get to that. And that's going to come faster than we, most people anticipate. Mm -hmm. That sounds, sounds like a, a cyberpunk uh, vision, right? <laughs> well, it's, it's just, it's just your environment and then you add info. So, you know, you're, you're looking at, you're looking at, you know, say your living room and you want it to be sunny and you can make it sunny. <laughs> you know, if you wanted to, you want to change the colors on your wall, you want to change your, your decor, you can do that. I mean, it, you can have, you can modify your entire environment. You can modify the people that you interact with. You can change their looks. You can change how they talk. I mean, it, it's everything is actually something that you, you, you can actually potentially manipulate. It's a, it's a, I see it in the game. The game is when you, when you actually play these games and you start modifying things and you start to tweak them and you get to the things that you like, I mean, being able to change everything in, in, in your visual and auditory environment is amazing. <laughs> it's absolutely nuts. And you can only see that by doing that in the game um, and projecting out that that's, we're very close to doing that in, to the, the world around us. Um, so entrepreneurship, and if you're looking for places to go, that this is, this is like three or four years before you, that starts to hit. And uh, what do you think in, in terms of, um, you know, in terms of instabilities and, and risk factors that, uh, that we can imagine? Now, if we think about, for example, the uh, issues related to um, uh, resources, like, you know, uh, all the, um, you know, potential issues related, for example, to uh, climate change or, or disruptions to, uh, you know, um, agriculture or, or, or water cycles or even supply chains. So when I'm thinking about uh, uh, these new risk factors, how they can impact the space of organizing, um, you know, giving for granted that uh, we're going to still be able to leverage on these uh, uh, networks, on these communication information networks, uh, but more in terms of uh, uh, the new priorities that such a, uh, such a widespread uh, new types of risks uh, are going to project on the entrepreneur and on the citizens. Uh, how do you see that playing out, these new priorities? Um, well, it's... Um... I don't think it's solvable. Any of these things are really solvable using the old institutions and, and, and decision-making mechanisms that we have in place. I mean, networks changes it. It, can, it. it allows, it has the potential for allowing us to operate on a, on a international scale where we have a consensus develop, you know, across nations to do X, Y, Z um, and actually mobilize the resources to get things done. Um, and we're not there yet, but we're moving towards that. Uh, but it also, because of networks, there are these downsides. Um, you know, these shocks are amplified by these, these networks and it can cause a lot more internal fragmentation as a result. So uh, the biggest challenge we're facing right now is how do nations stay together 
how do they maintain cohesion in the face of these on, ongoing shocks? I mean, this is like for the U.S., it's, it, it's the third major shock that we've seen uh, at the global level uh, since this millennium started. We had 9-11, we had the financial crisis, and now this. And we we're really not getting much better at it. But it, every time it hits, you know, we're, we're uh, being torn apart a little bit more. Um, yeah, the the uh, the downside is right now is, is is trying to figure out how to maintain cohesion. Um, there are a couple different ways to do that, though. It, you know, there's this kind of try to develop a new kind of dynamic that allows you to respond to these changes while you know maintaining cohesion. And we're kind of trying to work that out in a in the U.S. political scene. This you know rather than the standard left and right, we have the consensus and disruption. Their first big consensus action has been responses pandemic. Uh, disruption, you can see that every day with Trump constantly changing the, the conversation, constantly disrupting the conversations. Um, and then there's a, the opposite is would be like a China with its social credit system saying, okay, uh, let's use the network to lock down society, lock down the socioeconomic system. Um, and then they pick the kind of Confucian model of what the best designed society is, and they're locking it down using gamification and and uh, corporate participation uh, and uh, trying to use that as a way to maintain cohesion in this kind of co complex and, and chaotic world that we're, we're in. Um, we'll see over the long term which one actually wins. I think the dynamic system actually wins if it can work out some way to institutionalize its its processes um, because it it's better at discovering information earlier. And we saw the downside in the Chinese system is that it was very slow to discover the pandemic. I mean, it, it suppressed the early information uh, back in December and early January uh, that could have made it very easy to extinguish. Um, and, you know, that system worked against them. So we'll, we'll see which, which system actually works out best. I do know, though, that if you stop the development of this kind of uh, mechanism, uh, by you know preventing data accumulation, putting limitations on social networks, uh, you might end up with a system that is not able to handle these shocks long term. It's good uh, if I can uh, jump in on that because I had a question on what you were saying before uh, that now we we are not alone in our sort of sense making, but uh, because we have access to networks, we we can seek information at scale from the people we're connected to. So actually linked to what you said now, uh, I had a question around, so what happens when, for example, the networks themselves start to monitor the information that is being shared, like we've seen in some cases by Twitter and Facebook, um, because of regulation that is emerging, but there seems to be a, a sort of gap between the institutions, the markets and the networks uh, so if you have any thoughts to share on these kind of risks of, uh, if you want, um, censoring yeah. or regulating the information flow. Right. There's the kind of short-term problem with the you know, censoring regulation, but I think what you're referring to maybe longer term is this, this idea of, of AI uh, and AI control over networks. And um, I mean, Marshall McLuhan would say that the only way we survive this this transition uh, is that we turn our society into a, a technological artifact. Kind of the Chinese are already doing that, trying to combine AI and gamification to 
turn their society into a technological artifact. Um, we have the potential of doing the same here, but it's, you know, I, I have no doubt that AIs will play a big part in actually, you know, smoothing this out and making it, making it viable. I mean, and, and, you know, already, I mean, all of us, uh, if you're using social networking at all, you're interacting with AIs every day. Um, they're modifying what you see and what, you know, how you interact. Uh, you know, billions of people are already interacting with the Facebook and Google AIs. Um, and they're constantly getting better and they're getting more information every day. Um, you know, how do we utilize those AIs to make this system, this network decision-making system work better um, without actually, you know, blocking it down like the Chinese? I mean, I don't see that as a, a viable goal on, you know, for us. Um, but uh, there's also, you know, a question of what, whether AIs are, uh, I mean, I, I think AI is going to be in virtually every product in 20, 30 years. And AIs require data, uh, and the, the biggest pools of data are social data. And if you block that, like I think Europe is doing now, is that, that those AIs will be stunted or not developed at all. And that you know, every product you're developing has to have some kind of AI component in it, um, some service that's being delivered through it. Um, and if you don't have those AIs, it's going to kind of stunt your economy over the long term. Um, We'll see what happens in the U.S. in terms of data privacy. We may end up going down the same road. So it'll only end up being China has the has the only really truly powerful AIs. Um, so what could AIs do for us that it's in a positive thing? Is that um, well, I mean, thinking in terms of of of, of achieving social goals, it could uh, smooth our interactions. So uh, once we develop a consensus, uh, it can. Uh, nudge us to the next decision uh, that we have to make in order to uh, uh, make that consensus real and tangible. Um, yeah, it's good. Yeah, actually, how to use the AIs in, in, in a positive way is, is, is really the conversation that w that's going to dominate, you know, discussions, you know, in five to 15 years. We're still kind of early in that. Um, and the parameters of that have yet to be established. But I don't see us, you know, going long term without working out those those uh, restrictions and what we want to use them for. They would certainly be, you know, very useful right now if they were employed to help us with this pandemic response. But so far, they've been really just sitting it out, um, censoring a little bit on the edges, but not trying to promote various responses that would actually make this go faster, or our response, you know, amplify our response in a way that would would make this. Uh, a more successful effort. So uh, we've kind of, you know, dropped the ball in terms of utilizing AIs in that regard. Are you following me on that, or does that uh, make any sense? Totally, totally for me. Uh, Sina, I don't know if you want to add something more. No, no, that's a really interesting uh, uh, response. Thank you. My 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 question, John, John, is uh, that a question or, or a topic that is coming to to my mind at the moment is uh, this friction, you no, know, between these two uh, layers. Uh, one is the uh, national and even supranational, I would say, um, layer uh, that uh, we see as a potentially as a way to enforce uh, uh, coherence. No, so so for example, uh, when it comes to a pandemic. Uh, of course, uh, there was some uh, articulation of sense making at the level of these open source networks, uh, the social media, and so on. But at the end of the day, 
you need uh, some kind of national uh, or federal, in the, in the case of the U.S., uh, response that ensure that we can coherently face uh, these uh, threats. Uh, and these kind of threats are going to be more frequent, I guess, in the future. No, not just pandemics, maybe, but also, you know, resource scarcity issues or, or related to climate change or something like that. And on the other hand, we have these new possibilities at community level to get, to develop more resilient strategies, and uh, probably this requires uh, a reprioritization that we were talking about uh, a few minutes ago. And also, as an entrepreneur. I may be more uh, concerned in the future about ensuring, for example, that my local community can, uh, you know, produce uh, food uh, locally or uh, get disconnected from or partially disconnected or more resilient uh, uh, with respect to these interconnected supply chains that we are now using, you know, these real-time supply chains. So I see this this kind of friction, you know, between... Uh, uh, we are, it looks like we are a bit lost now between um, looking for more uh, uh, coherence at the national level in in the wake of these uh, uh, new risks coming up, or uh, more resilience at community level. No, so what do you? How do you see that? And especially again from the perspective of uh, designing organizations, uh, what do you? How do you see that playing out? Well, I mean, I have a rule of thumb with with regard to resilience, and you know, you, you know, my earlier work was focused a lot on resilience um, and handling the problems associated with system disruption and how easily, you know, the large fragile systems that we're dependent on um, can break down. And um, you know, my general philosophy with resilience in the modern world, at the individual and the community level, is to um, connect with the bigger system on your own terms. So what that means is you build enough productive capacity or reserve capacity so that if the bigger system goes down, you can still function and you can still uh, achieve your goals. But on the other hand, you don't want to totally disconnect or overproduce at the local level to the point where you, you are uh, competing with you know, more efficiently produced stuff at the macro level. So you know, take advantage of, you know, I, I have a generator at home, um, a whole house generator. It, you know, when the power goes out, it goes on. Um, so I really don't ever miss a beat with that. Uh, but I don't produce it 24-7 because the energy that I get from the grid is a lot cheaper. Um, and, um, you know, I don't have to replace the parts on my generator all the time because it's running full full steam. And that's the you know pretty much the case with everything is that you you take advantage of all the the benefits of of connecting to the the larger system, but don't make yourself dependent on um, and connect on your own terms. Um, does that answer the question? Yes. So uh, if I think about this, I, I can uh, I can uh, imagine that maybe this is an, also a new space of organizing. So maybe as entrepreneurs, we can imagine that. Uh, uh, there could be some uh, strategies that we develop in developing these uh, uh, infrastructures that can uh, allow our communities to connect uh, with the system on our own terms. Because at the end, of, you know, you know, at the end of the day, this means essentially producing redundancy and redundancy, and uh, uh, somehow also in terms of infrastructures that we need to create. So I believe when we look into uh, resources. Uh, to build these infrastructures, uh, it may be may be hard to um, 
invest you know all these uh, all these resources uh, into creating infrastructures that are uh, uh, not uh, used most of the time oh yeah that's the few you don't you don't want to produce so much you don't want to build a completely parallel infrastructure you just want to produce enough emergency capacity that you don't end up destitute you don't end up completely broken if the system breaks down mm-hmm. um, you know it's like I, I maybe it's because of the way uh, you know we, we buy stuff we always have uh, somebody mentioned that we always have like two weeks of food in our house so if stuff shut down tomorrow uh, we wouldn't and we weren't able to buy we'd at least have two weeks at a minimum but just how we purchase our food it's not two months it's not uh, two years but it's it's a two-week buffer so it's you know a short duration buffer that allows you to kind of weather these these breakdowns um, and then, you know, it's like, okay, so for instance, uh, you, you can't go into the office. Well, here's the alternative is that we have the kind of online uh, coordination tools necessary and the procedures necessary to actually work online. So my son's a uh, programmer down at the Code Academy and, you know, they closed their office and they're not missing a beat. They know how to work online. They know how to get things done. And it's not optimal, but the procedures were put in place to make that possible. Um, and the and the software is made available, and 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 the kind of experience necessary to actually utilize it effectively was there. So um, they weren't completely shut down when the uh, the shutdown of the office occurred. You follow me on that? It's just it's 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 not it's not um, no. if you try yeah, to yeah, do everything no. in parallel, you're 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 going to over the, the cost structure is so steep, it's going to bury you in costs and and, and make you incredibly inefficient. Sure. I'm wondering if um, any of these investments in creating this resilience, uh, essentially uh, uh, in this uh, creating these redundant systems that can protect us from shocks, uh, at the end of the day, means that we will have less energy or less resources to invest in things such as you know the la- the latest. Uh, uh, techno gadgets or the latest uh, uh, digital experiences, like you know, uh, traveling uh, with Airbnbs or, or, or I don't know, maybe uh, you know, there is a platform these weeks that uh, uh, is making grounds. It's a platform for connecting uh, celebrities to people, so that you can have a celebrity to uh, make a, um, a birthday wish uh, to to your relatives. For example, it's called Cameo. So I'm thinking, you know, maybe the future we will have to have invest energy and resources in building resilient infrastructures. And, and so all these, uh, you know, kind of pointless uh, uh, services and gadgets are maybe are, are going to be uh, no more in our uh, priority list. And somehow this mean, what it means that we need to expect uh, some kind of reconfiguration in terms of priorities for citizens and therefore also for entrepreneurs. And then I will leave the floor to Stina, maybe if you want to add something on this, John. Oh, yeah. Um, well, the beauty of, of moving to a, uh, more of an information environment is that, you know, uh, when things change and things change constantly in, in, in a complex environment, I mean, think about it. Back even two months ago, would you even imagine that you were exactly in the situation you are in right now? I mean, the world has changed. I mean, really, really quickly. And it's changing daily um, <laughs> and, you know, in, in, in amazing ways. I mean, amazingly bad in many instances, but, uh, but that change is there. The beauty about moving towards a more of an information um, economy is that, that those services and those ideas and those entrepreneurial fixes 
those things that, that add value to people's lives can roll out really quickly. So taking advantage of that, that the instant change in demand has never been more, more possible than today. Um, you know, rolling out that new service that, that nobody would have paid attention to two weeks ago or three weeks ago. Um, and that would have been lost in the noise and all of a sudden becomes a hot thing because it solves this specific problem or adds value to lives that are, that are, have been disconnected as a result of this. So, um, yeah, that kind of, that kind of speed, uh, you know, and then it, it, it all accelerates when you do that whole at, at that AR component is because you just, you can start modifying environments very, very quickly. And, and the speed of the change is just amplified is that more of the things that we interact with on every you know everyday basis will all be informational and in, interchangeable and and modifiable um it'll surround us surround our visual environment and our auditory environment um and the things that we have the physical things become uh, will change at a slower rate they'll be more you know they'll kind of fold down into the infrastructure I'm starting to connect with this, this idea of uh, AI, AI, uh, this comment you made about AR indeed, you know, because it's some kind of uh, new layer of uh, uh, experience that is extremely research uh, light. And uh, so it looks like it's more apt for, for the future that we can expect uh, in terms of relationship with resources and, and changes. So, yeah. so thanks very much. This was a very illuminating co comment, I believe. Oh yeah, you know, I, I didn't really see it fully. I thought I saw it, uh, you know, what the potential was before, and then I then I, when I saw it working in the game, and I saw the number of modifications flowing out that did, you know, changed everything. You know, changed all the interaction that you had, and how that could be applied to life on a day to day basis. It was like, wow! It became so apparent that that was going to be it. It's kind of like, I, and I wrote a report back in '96. I was at Forrester. I was like the first internet analyst back in 95 um, for them and maybe one of the few in the world that were doing it full time. And um, I wrote a report in 96 called Personal Broadcast Networks. And it was apparent to me that, you know, it was kind of describing what the social networking space would look like, but it was 96 and people are like looking at me like, are you crazy? But it was like really, really apparent that people would want to publish out pictures and, and text in a way that can then be subscribed to by others. And then they would network that and you would take the stuff that you were subscribing to and you'd add value to that and publish it out with, with comments and things like that. And then that kind of network made so much sense. And so, it, you know, it's like when the light goes on, you see it, it's like, wow. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, anyway, just, so anyways, it's just, my thinking process. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, I was I was reading something the the other day in in this book that is a, a, a future fiction book on imagining cities being run by different companies, and they were talking about these voice programmed cities, and it seems uh, tangent to what you're talking about. Uh, so you'd be able to sort of by the data what you say, your surroundings would change because someone is capturing that data and somehow transforming it into a physical or a virtual reality somehow. Right. And it depends on the mods that you, you want, you add. Um, it'd probably be the cruder form like we do. You know, it's like back uh, when um, the difference between people who have PCs, you know, back in the early 2000s and people were trying to go on the smartphone route is the PCs allowed a lot more modifications and a lot more nuanced use. 
And then the people who were using smartphones, which are basically you know portable PCs, uh, didn't have that level of control. Everything was packaged, so they were buying you know they were more accessing services. So it's a kind of a it's, yeah. yeah, the voice stuff is probably going to end up being more the mass version of it, and the uh, you know where where the services are kind of layered on and and uh, you know you get kind of like a soup to nuts solution for this or that and then you know you'll share it with you know tens of millions of other people so it's kind of it, it, it thinking it through on that is that there's going to things are going to change really quickly and you can see you know everyone hold up in their houses right now you know that how that actually would sell right now if it was available <laughs> just for the change this is for the variety and, and you know you, if you can change your environment constantly uh it makes you know staying in one physical environment a lot less of a negative. You know what I mean? Yeah. I had another question as well regarding the entrepreneurial uh, space. Um, also because of something I was reading about the energy question and how integrated our value chains are, that it would actually be difficult at the moment for Europe to gear up, for example, in solar energy, uh, because many of the components come from China and because of these disruptions. And so I was wondering what you think in terms of uh, the potential of thinking in terms of a circular economy and if there would be, if you see a lot of potential in, in that space, like we have limited resources and with these needs being pressing and, and trade being disrupted, if you, if you have thought about that potential. Uh, the downside of globalization, right? So it's a the uh, the problems with being dependent on countries that could just like disappear or regions that could just disconnect from you and then leave you stranded. Uh, and that's going to be a learning process. I mean, I think most nations right now, for instance, in med medical manufacturing, um, you know, we found that ninety five percent of our masks were produced in China, and we only produce five percent domestically, and um, that kind of shock, hopefully, you know, will kind of send a signal to the at least the national governments that they sh should do more of the essential production locally, uh, in area or in region, so that when things got bad, that they were able to, you know, have something to boot up, something to you know build upon. It may not be all of the production because it's not the most efficient, but I think uh, the way this, the global system is set up, uh, the markets are set up. I don't think we're going to see a move away from the most efficient supplier for most stuff, um, but that the amount of locally or domestically or regionally produced um, things in, within certain categories uh, will be, should be increased um, in order just to, you know, provide that kind of connect on your own terms capability where if you do have to ramp it up like we are right now in masks, since we're not getting any from China anymore, um, is that... Um, you have something to build on. That makes sense, or yeah, yeah, sure. Well, it looks like John from this interview. That is, uh, I think we we are come, we're getting to to the last bits, but uh, um, it looks like uh, um, you're you pointing out a future where basically uh, we will need to factor in uh, in a better way uh, fat uh, tail risks. Uh, somehow and from what i understand from this conversation it's also an open question maybe um 
how these institutions are going to interplay. So these four stages, that four layers that you mentioned at the start, uh, the um, tribes, uh, the uh, institutions, the markets, and the networks are going to coexist. That's my my uh, feeling, you know, after this conversation. Uh, but we don't know yet uh, what responsibility and what, uh, uh, I would say, what function they will have in society uh, and how they are going to interplay. We don't know yet. Um, am, I, am I right? That's correct. I mean, we're still trying to find ways to formalize and uh, modify networks in a way that, they, you know, that, that could, so they can integra- integrate into the existing decision-making systems. We're, we're still figuring out what they're good for. I mean, um, you and I might see that, you know, the three of us may see that the value and utility in, in using networks, but it's not really quite, I'm not really quite sure that most people do yet. Um and how to get them to participate in a way that that's positive. I mean, it. I mean, there's so many ways that networks changes. It's just like, you know, I did a, a couple of reports on um, on you know, how it, uh, you know, social networking uses a lot of empathic language and and creates kind of tribalism and and that you know, a lot of what we're conveying on social networks is often uh, emotively loaded, um, and that people see what we're we're talking about and they see patterns uh of of activity or or, or behavior that they can condemn um uh, based on that you know there's emotionally laden words and there's a lot of us versus them that's that's easy to construct online uh using social networking and pattern matching um and that in the extreme end could end up in a lot of extremist violence uh because when you start to build tribalism and tribalism is built through empathic language. You know, if somebody is hurting one of us, uh, that that can yield uh, negative results. Um, so, I mean, we, we still have to work through all of this stuff. Uh, you know, it's a it's a it's a lot going to be a lot of studying and a lot of uh, experience that's going to have to be developed over time. That uh, you know, and how it changes us and. Uh, you know, it's like a, oh, geez, I, I'm just kind of a non sequitur. It's the idea that you ever hear Marshall McLuhan say, uh, we become a global village. Okay. So it's not really global villages, global villagers, right? Is that uh, you go back to the kind of old villager kind of way of looking at things and everyone's interested in everyone else's business and they're very judgmental. And, uh, you know, they, they're sometimes very bloody minded because everyone is like packed cheek to jowl you know, really closely. Um, and when other people talk and other people say things uh, that are really contrary to what you believe it to be true, it can also, it can seem so personal because it's like re- delivered right to you. It's on your phone. It's like right in front of you uh, coming from your network. Um, you know, that's that's a lot of the things that we're going to have to figure out how to tolerate and how to, you know, think through and develop you know, new mechanisms of thinking that will allow us to fully utilize the tool without going crazy. Mm-hmm. It feels like after uh, all these uh, centuries, we still didn't figure out how to relate with technology, you know, techniques uh, <laughs> to, to quote, you know, to, to piggyback on the question concerning technology uh, that uh, is such a hold uh, topic of uh, exploration and conversation for philosophers uh, 
it looks like to me that we're living through a world where uh, we are extremely narcissistic, extremely powerful as individuals, uh, where technology connects all of us and we don't have answers uh, and we don't have the answers yet. So it's, it's an extremely challenging and also sometimes scary, but also sometimes very, very you know, open and potentially uh, transformative uh, perspective, I would say. Yeah, um, but it's, re- it's rewiring us. I mean, it, it's, it's changing the way we think. I mean, that's, the electronic technologies are, and, and printing were very profound in that regard. I mean, the physical changes like uh, uh, cars and, and automobiles and things like that it, and airplanes I mean, they changed the way we organize society, but they weren't as traumatic. When you start rewiring the way the brain works, um, like what we're seeing now with the internet and social networking, it's 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 affecting how you think. <laughs> that's a that's as about as traumatic as it can get, right? And but most people don't even think that they're actually being changed, but they are. They are being rewired. Yeah. Yeah, maybe at the end of this conversation, our listeners will need to get back to study a little bit of Marshall McLuhan's work. I think that was that could be a good suggestion. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, it's easy to misinterpret him. I, I mean, I did a report; it's free up on the on my thing uh, and uh, on my Patreon. But um, you know, it's at least what I got out of it was that the, the key things were were being rewired, and here's what how that feels, and this is what that means, and um, that we are headed towards, you know, some kind of technological artifact that will and, and instantiate, you know, the kind of mechanisms that, uh, you know, for how the network works that will, you know, carry us into the future to allow us to to kind of optimize uh, how network decision making works at a societal level, at a, at a global level, um, and that uh, allows it to be incorporated into the other decision making systems that we have. Definitely, definitely. Um, I think I close this. Uh, I, I, I we close this conversation on this note, uh, and I, I think my feeling is uh, the future is pretty open ended, right, John? <laughs> it, yeah, it's definitely open ended. It's what we make of it, though, and um, you know you got to accept the changes and you know make them your own. Thanks very much, John. It was a great conversation. Uh, um, first, before closing it, I would love if you can point our listeners to where they can find more for your work. Uh, well, I have a Patreon. It's uh, John Robert, you know, at Patreon, J O H N R O B B. It's the Global Gorillas Report, which is my old Global Gorillas blog. And you know, I just I put up a little a little bit of barrier because I didn't want to get swarmed with people who are just you know kind of wreck the kind of community that I'm trying to develop. But um, right now I'm doing a pandemic 2020 paper, um, which is pretty much every day I'm, I'm updating it with new insights into uh, the pandemic response. Things are changing so quickly. Um, people seem to like that. That's it. Thanks very much for your contribution, John. And uh, I, I'm sure our listeners uh, are going to enjoy this conversation as we did. Oh, thank, thank you, you so very much. much. Yep. And nice meeting you, Stina. Likewise. Thank you so much. All right, but take care and thanks. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to Boundaryless Conversation Podcast. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share this episode on social media and subscribe to our podcast by looking up for Boundaryless Conversation Podcast on all major podcasting platforms. Stay tuned on www.platformdesigntoolkit.com for more general research updates where you can also find opportunities for learning and free tools for you and your team to design platform strategies in these turbulent times. This podcast has been brought to you 
by our research sponsor Intesa San Paolo. We want to also thank Walter Mobilio at Leo Sound for the ad hoc music.